Welcome to the Bethel Free Baptist Church Weekly Sermons. This is the morning service of Sunday the 1st of November 2015, entitled The Marks of a Great Church. And the Bible reading is taken from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 to 10. Here's Pastor David Moore. If you have your Bible with you today, we're in 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians and chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians and chapter 1. And we're going to begin reading in verse 1. We'll read the entirety of the chapter. That's uh, verse uh, 10, one, verses 1 to 10. And uh, we want to think today, especially on a church anniversary Sunday, about the marks of a great church. What makes a church a great church? And I want to uh, set before you the example of the church at Thessalonica, one of the great churches of Macedonia that the Apostle Paul often referenced and gave thanks for. Let's, uh, let's begin reading in verse 1. It says, Paul and Silvanus, that Silas and Timothy, unto the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father. Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God, for our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance, as you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost, so that you were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to God were to spread abroad, so that we need not to speak anything. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. We trust the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his precious, precious word. Well, this is quite a milestone, isn't it? Any church's history, I guess, 84th anniversary. I was reading some of the historical background to this church and what an amazing thing it would have been to be here in 1931 and to watch that congregation come in through those doors for the first time and to worship the Lord in a building that they built with their own hands. What a remarkable thing that they constructed this building uh, with their own hands. And uh, the uh, notes say there that the uh, church was uh, filled at times from somewhere between 500 and 1,000 uh, people. I, that would be phenomenal, wouldn't it, to be in here with a 1,000 people? That would be just an amazing thing to have been a part of. But what a joy, you know, 84 years on, here you are, you're still here, you're still holding the torch for the gospel, you're still proclaiming Christ crucified. And of course, also we have to uh, congratulate pastor on 25 years of pastoral ministry. And I have to tell you, most pastors last about four years. That's what they say. Most pastors last around four years and then they go on somewhere else. So you've done quite well to have the pastor here for 25, uh, 25 years. And uh, I'm sure the Lord has blessed his ministry among you. Those are two amazing landmarks. And you know, we ought to thank God for those things, for the testimony of this church and for the ministry of Pastor Larry. Uh, but you know, the, the times move on and times change. And of course, perhaps the demographics of this area has changed or whatever. And, and uh, you know, life is just always on this forward march, isn't it? You know, here's the thing. No matter how much life changes, no matter how much society changes, no matter how much man's opinion changes, God's word remains the same. The gospel is the same. 
And so this morning, I want to draw your attention to one of the great gospel-preaching churches of the Bible, the church of Thessalonica. It was a church planted by the Apostle Paul himself, along with his co-workers Silas and uh, Timothy. Uh, Paul was its uh, first pastor, but uh, he wasn't the pastor for 25 years. He didn't even make it to be the pastor for one year, because after a few months, he was chased out of town, and uh, he was pushed into the neighborhood area of Berea, and he was charged down there by the Jews of Thessalonica, who eventually pushed him onward into Athens. And you can read about that in the Acts in chapter 17. But here Paul is writing now, and he's looking back to this brief ministry that he's had with the Thessalonians, and uh, he is addressing some of the issues that they had as a fledgling church, as a new church. And uh, he wants to encourage them. He wants to instruct them. He wants to fill in some of the gaps in their instruction that they need. And as he is giving these lessons throughout this, uh, this book, and indeed the next book, Two Thessalonians, there are some tremendous truths for you and I gathered here this morning to get a hold of and to note and to mark as the characteristics or the marks of a great, great church. And here's the first thing I would say to you this morning about the Thessalonian church. They were energetic in their service. Look in verse 3 of this uh, chapter. Uh, Paul says, Remembering without ceasing your work of faith and your labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father. Here is Paul, and he's just said in verse 2 that he gives thanks for this church. He thanks all, God always for them, and he's not just saying that. He's, he and his co-workers are daily in prayer and uh, giving praise to God for this church. But here he points out three particular aspects of this church's ministry and of its life that he gives thanks for. He thanks God for their work of faith. He thanks God for their labor of love. He thanks God for their patience of hope. Now, bearing in mind that this is one of Paul's earliest epistles. In fact, this is probably the second letter he wrote. He wrote Galatians first, and then he wrote one, uh, what we call 1 Thessalonians. It's very striking that he makes mention of these three great virtues, these three great qualities of, of faith and of love and of hope. Uh, this is one of the Apostle Paul's uh, key themes right throughout his epistles. In fact, at the end of this book, in chapter 5 and verse 8, he refers to it again. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for an helmet of salvation, the hope, uh, sorry, for that, for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Of course, we know that he makes reference to these same three qualities in the uh, book of Corinthians in that great love chapter. And he says, there abides now faith, hope, charity. These three, but the greatest of these is charity. And you can read that same theme throughout the book of Romans, uh, in uh, Galatians and Colossians uh, and elsewhere. Now notice, notice too how these Thessalonians, how their virtues were, were characterized and how those virtues compared with the church of Ephesus in the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 2 and verse 2, Sorry, chapter, yeah, chapter, yep, chapter two, verse two. There we are. Uh, Paul, or Jesus addressing the church at, uh, at Ephesus says this, I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience and how they cannot bear them which are evil and has tried them which say they are apostles and are not and has found them to be liars. It was very interesting. Here was the church at Ephesus, one of the early churches of scripture. And uh, here's Paul, and he's, and, he's, and he's writing to the Thessalonians. He mentions these same three virtues, faith and love and patience. And Jesus mentions the same thing to the church at Ephesus in the book of Revelation in chapter 2. But here's the thing you'll notice. The Ephesians had works, they had labor, they had patience, but they were not energized. They were not motivated by faith and the love and the hope that was present in the church of Thessalonica. So Paul gives thanks for their work 
of faith. You know, sometimes said that Paul and the Apostle James are at odds when it comes to the matter of faith and works. Some people suggest that uh, James was teaching us that, you know, the Christian life is one of works. And in fact, he taught no such thing. Uh, and that Paul taught us that the Christian life was one of faith. But actually, both, uh, both writers are teaching us that Christianity is a faith that works. It's a faith that, that manifests itself in labors. And, uh, you know, both agree that works are the outcome of faith. Listen to me, friends. If you tell me you're a Christian and Christ has made no difference in your life, I've got bad news for you. The chances are you're not a Christian. You see, there ought to be an outworking of faith. Faith is not just believing a creed. Faith is not just giving a mental assent to a a set of doctrines. Faith is about my heart's trust. It's about me placing my trust in Jesus Christ as my personal Savior, as the only hope of life eternal and the giver of life eternal. And once I do that, the Spirit of God comes in and a work begins in me. The work of faith. True faith produces works. He gives thanks for their labor of love. Now, this is a phrase that we employ sometimes in the English language uh, to describe some unpaid work that somebody might do simply because they are motivated by the love of the work that they're engaged in. For example, you know, we used to have a neighbor. In fact, I've had several neighbors that are like this. But we used to have a neighbor who loved his car. And he would wash that car literally every single day. Every day. Now, if you know me, I wash my car Christmas and Easter, okay? So, so my car and his car didn't look quite the same, all right? Uh, my car, you know, had all the, uh, all the, the, the filth from the road and the bird droppings. And, and his car, he was out. He washed this car every single day. He's polishing it every day. He could see his face shining off that car. Every, and you say, well, what is wrong with him? His car can't be that dirty that he has to wash it every single day. But it's a labor of law. It's a labor of law. I used to live beside another fellow, and he was the same with his house. He was always painting his house. He was always working on his home. Now, you know, I would work on my house when it was needed. But he would paint his house over and over and over again. It's almost like he would stop and he would then start all over again. It was like the, the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco. You know, he'd start all over again and he'd paint the thing. And you say, well, what is wrong with him? His house doesn't need painted. But it was a labor of love. And the word labor there indicates a toiling. It indicates a working to the point of exhaustion, being motivated by love. One writer said this, love is essentially what the Christian faith is all about. Love brings things down to earth and up to date. The life of Christ can be summarized in one word, love. It's a driving, motivating force in the heart of the believer who loves the Lord. And because he loves the Lord, he's willing to labor. He's willing to work where it is difficult. He is willing to bear the burden. We've just had a wonderful week of, uh, of Holiday Bible Club at our church this week. And I was thinking about this as I was observing the folks doing the work. Now, I have to say I did very little of the work. All I did was write a couple of little sketches for the kids uh, to to have played out in front of them. Uh, But years ago, I used to do the whole thing. You know, I used to do the print the leaflets and get the banner made and, uh, and do the stories and do the games and everything. But now everybody else is doing it. And uh, I just come in there and inspect like an Ofsted inspector. You know, I come in there and see what's going on. But, you know, what a wonderful thing it was to see the industry of God's people, to see the time those people put into that, to see the effort that they made, and to see their efforts rewarded. You see, for them, it was a labor of love. And that's the mark of a great church. Thirdly, he gives thanks for their patience of hope. That is their constancy their steadfastness in the face of great trial 
and great difficulties. It is the Spirit which can bear all things, not simply with resignation, but with blazing hope. The patience of hope. And what was their blazing hope? Here's what their blazing hope was, and we'll see this at the end of this chapter. Their blazing hope was the prospect that Jesus would come and deliver them from the wrath to come. They were a church that were energetic in their service. Then in verse 4, they were elect in their purpose. He says, knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. Now, we've got to be very careful when we come to this word, election, because some people trip over this word and they get the idea that God has elected some people to be saved and then leaves everybody else to be damned. But actually, nothing could be further from the truth. The Bible says that God is willing that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The Bible says that God is willing to have all men to be saved and to come on to the knowledge of the truth. You see, if you're not saved today, it's not because God hasn't elected you, it's because you have rejected the gospel. So when we speak about election, we're talking about an election that is related to God's foreknowledge. God foreknows who is going to be saved, and on the basis of that knowledge, he has elected us, chosen us, to be conformed to the image of Christ and to be sanctified, set apart unto his eternal service. Now, you say, well, how can that be? How can God know that? Because God knows everything. Because God inhabits eternity. Because God is not conditioned by time or limited in knowledge. Election is always unto service, never unto salvation. And you say, well, how can you tell if you're the elect of God? Here's how you tell. You tell by the kind of outworking of the Spirit that Paul has already identified here and will go on to speak about further. How can you know your election of God? Here's how you know it. You know it by the fruit of the Spirit in your life. You know, there are a lot of folks that can talk a good talk. You know, I'm sure your pastor in 25 years has heard a few folks along the way who give a good talk, who can say all the things that, he, that they think he would like to hear. But you know what a pastor really looks for? He looks for the fruit of the Spirit in people's lives. He looks for love and joy and, and, and peace and long-suffering and so on. He looks for those things because those are the marks of their election. And their election was sure. They knew their election. They knew their purpose. Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. They were elect in their purpose. But notice in verse 5, they were exemplary in their conduct. Paul says... For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance, as you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. And ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word with much, in much affliction, with the joy of the Holy Ghost, so that ye were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. Now notice what Paul says, first of all. He says, our gospel came not unto you in word only. Let me say this, the gospel always comes by means of the written or spoken word. The Bible says that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. That's why it's important that every church gets involved in worldwide evangelization and sending missionaries out into the four corners of the earth. Because unless people hear the gospel, they can't be saved. That's the long and short of it. But notice that Paul says that these words were not mere oratory. You know, we never, we never swap preaching uh, for oratory. Oratory is just the art of public speaking. Oratory is what the prime minister and other politicians engage in when they're trying to convince us of a particular uh, policy. It's within the gift of all men. But the preaching of the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. 
You see, Paul's preaching at Thessalonia had been in power. The word is dynamis. It had been dynamic. He had come to that city expectant. He'd come into this pagan town and he anticipated results from his ministry because he came in the strength and in the power of the Holy Ghost and his reliance was upon the Spirit of God. In fact, uh, uh, one writer said this, John Phillips said this, he did not rely on excellent hermeneutics, his knowledge of homiletics, his first-class education, his mastery of the original languages, his natural eloquence, or his powerful personality. It was not his outlines, his illustrations, or his sincerity that produced such spectacular results as always followed in the train of his preaching. It was the Holy Spirit from start to finish. Everything about Christianity is supernatural. No wonder we have to rely on the Spirit of God. So Paul came to Thessalonica preaching the Word. And he came preaching the Word in the Holy Ghost. He came in much assurance, not conveying assurance to his hearers, but the assurance was on his part. He came preaching with conviction. He really believed what he preached. He not only believed what he preached, and I like this, He practiced what he preached so that there was no discernible difference between the man and his message. How important it is, friends, listen carefully now, how important it is that our testimony of our lips marries up with the testimony of our lives. It was no good coming and just being a Christian in church on Sundays. Being a Christian is about who you are at home on Monday or at work on Tuesday or in the community on Wednesday. Christianity is about how you express Christ day by day in your daily life. And so we've got to be sure that we're not just talking the talk and feeling to walk the walk. The Apostle Paul practiced what he preached so that when people observed his life, they didn't say, if that's a Christian, I don't want to be one. They said, if that's a Christian, I would like to be one. I would like to be one. Notice what happened when he not just proclaimed the word with his lips, but he proclaimed it with his life. He says, and ye became followers of us and of the Lord. See that word ye in the Bible there in the Greek language, it's emphatic. He says, and you, you became followers of us. You became followers of us in the Lord. In other words, they really believed. Now, this might seem strange. You see, you would think that the order of things would be they became followers of the Lord and of us. But notice what Paul says. You became followers of us and the Lord. Now, what does that tell you? I'll tell you what that tells you. It tells you the historical order of their experience. People must believe in the messenger before they can believe in the message. You must believe in the messenger before you can believe in the message. You see, the preacher has to be credible. He has to be believable. You know, in practical terms of discipleship, men follow their mentors before they follow Christ. You start listening to a man before you start listening to the Word of God. You start believing in that person before you believe in the person he's presenting to you. Paul is following the Lord. As he's following the Lord, he's declaring him to others. As he declares him to others, they are following him and in turn following the Lord. And in truth, in true form, as a true discipler of man, at some point he will step aside and they will follow the Lord on their own. There was a young man in our church and I love him dearly. And uh, he has uh, Asperger's. And if you know anything about anybody who has the Asperger's condition, uh, they are just a sponge of information. They want all kinds of information. And when he first came to our church, he's a young Christian, he would ask me a question, and I would answer the question. And you know, pastors hear a lot of questions in the course of their ministry. 
And you give a lot of the answers, the same answers over and over again. So you say that, and usually most people are satisfied and they go away. Not an Asperger's uh, patient, you know. He wants to, he asked, he answered the question. He would then ask you a question about the answer you've just given him. And then you'd answer that question, and he would ask you another question about the answer you had just now given him to the previous answer to the question that he had before. And, and he would keep you there all day. And some days I would get up, this is not a word of a lie, and I would open my email. And here would be a bunch of emails from him in the middle of the night. He would sit up to four o'clock in the morning. And, and I'd look at the times on these emails, and I'd think, does this guy never sleep? You know, and there'd be, a, there'd, be like a, there'd be like 25 questions. And they weren't easy questions. They were hard questions. And so I'd sit there, and I'd spend half the morning typing my answers to these questions, and I'd hit the send button, and I'd think, well, that's, that's, that's that. No, no. Pretty soon... Another email come bouncing back, well, what about this? And what about that? And so the first year or two I knew him, he was driving me crazy with all these questions. But you know, I watched him grow. And I watched his Bible knowledge increase. And there came a day when he wrote me an email and he said, I have a question. And he sent me the question and I emailed him back with this answer. I said, you already know enough to answer this for yourself. I'm not answering this question. And he did answer it for himself. And he used to say to people when they would come into church, pastor won't answer my questions anymore. (laughs) Well, well, that's not quite true. But the point was he was following me. And there needed to be a point when he stopped following me and started following Jesus. And that's what Paul is speaking about here. So he says, you became followers of us and of, uh, of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost. You see the word received there? It's a lovely little Greek word. It's dekomi is the Greek word. And it means to receive somebody with open arms, like you'd receive a visitor into your home. You know, a friend comes to your home, a family member who's been gone a long time comes to your home, and you open your door to them, and you completely receive them into your house. And that's how these people welcomed Christ into their lives. It was no reluctant welcome. It was no far escape Christianity. Well, I'll just trust him to stay out of hell. No, no, no. These people received Christ like a long lost friend. They took him into their bosom and they loved him. And this they did in the face of affliction. Notice what he says there. Having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost. Here's the thing. When they got saved, when they received the gospel, when they believed the word, when they trusted Christ, life didn't get easier for them. It got harder. It got harder. They were afflicted. They were discriminated against. They were persecuted. They were pressurized. And yet they continued on faithful. In other words, they did this despite the cost to themselves. They considered only the joy of the Lord in their lives. And they received him no matter what the cost. You know, there's a lot of Christians today. And sometimes missionaries used to call these kind of Christians rice Christians. Missionaries used to go into certain areas of the world and they would offer a meal of rice to people and uh, if they would come to the church services and of course people would be hungry and they would come for the rice but not for the truth. And they got shallow professions of faith. Well, let me tell you something. There are plenty of rice Christians in, in, in Britain today. There are rice Christians who are filling churches today because they believe that God is somehow honor-bound to make us rich, that God is somehow going to increase our wealth and improve our health, and we're going to get something out of it. Let me tell you what you're going to get out of it, friends, and I want to be honest with you. The tide is turning in this country, and there is coming a day of persecution to the people of God in the United Kingdom. 
And you better understand that up front. I don't want to lie to you. I don't want to be one of those preachers that tells you it's going to, God has this wonderful plan for your life and everything's going to be rosy. And it's not. It's getting harder and harder and harder. I just saw a video yesterday of a gentleman in, uh, I think it was Blackpool. And he has a, a cafe in, and it's, it's a church ministry. They call it the uh, Salt and Light Cafe, I think it is, or Salt and Life. And, uh, and in that cafe, they were simply had a TV screen which was showing Bible verses, just circulating Bible verses, and somebody made a complaint. And the police came into his cafe and told him that he was not allowed to show Bible verses in his church cafe. And let me tell you something. You better decide for the Lord, if you're going to decide for the Lord, that you're going to decide for him, not for the benefits he may bring. Not for some blessing that some preacher somewhere may have offered you in his name. Not because somebody said God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. No, here's the reason you trust the Lord. Because he died for our sin and gave himself for us and rose again the third day and offers to us eternal life. We receive him with joy of the Holy Ghost. And in so doing, they became examples unto others. Look in verse 7. So they were... In samples to all that believe in Macedonia and in Achaia. You have no doubt there were many individuals of examples of faith among them. But when Paul says you were in samples, he's not saying of one particular individual. You know, every pastor just about that you meet will always flag up one individual in their church who maybe stands above the others as an example of someone who endures, or an example of someone who's an evangelist, or an example of somebody who's a prayer warrior. But Paul wasn't pointing out one particular individual in his congregation and saying, you know, this fellow, this fellow is an example. He says of this whole church that they were an example to the churches of Macedonia in their own region of northern Greece, and in Achaia, to the southern part of ancient Greece. And the word in sample there means a pattern. They set a pattern for other churches. They set the standard for other churches. Here's what I want to say to you folks here in Bethel today, celebrating your 84th church anniversary. Be such a church to this community that you set an example for all the other churches. Be the standard bearer. Be the church that sets the pace. Be the church that, that is out front in serving the Lord Jesus. They became the pattern for others. In fact, the very next verse highlights how, how far-reaching their influence became. Notice they were not only examples in terms of their conduct, but they were evangelistic in their outreach. Notice what it says in verse 8. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord. Not only in Macedonia where they lived, but also in Achaia, the neighboring region, and also in every place your faith to God's word is spread abroad so that we need not to speak anything. Let me tell you something. This was a great church. You know, if you ask people today, why do you go to church? Why is your church a great church? Here's the answers you'll get. Our church is a great church because we have a brilliant children's ministry. Now, there's nothing wrong with having a brilliant children's ministry. Every church should do its best to reach boys and girls with the gospel. Nothing wrong with that. Some churches will say, well, our church is the best because we have the, the best musicians. We have the best music ministry. And again, there's nothing wrong with having good musicians. There's nothing wrong with having, you know, a, a good spirit of worship. But you know what? Having great musicians, having a great children's ministry or a great youth work or a great crash or, or whatever else you want to put your finger on, having a great fellowship, or, it doesn't count for anything if you're not evangelistic. Hear me? A great church is evangelistic. A great church is proclaiming the gospel. And any church that is not proclaiming the gospel is an irregular church. It's a church that is out of step with the word of God. Here was a church that was witnessing to people. Here is a church that was winning people to Christ. Now, let me ask you a very clear question. If you're a Christian this morning, have you ever in your life endeavored to win someone to Christ? 
You see, that's the mark of a real Christian. A real Christian is an evangelist. Now, geographically, this church was ideally placed uh, to be an evangelistic church. Their church was located at a crossroads, at a trade route crossroads. If you were to look on the map for Thessalonica, you'd see it's at the northern end of the Aegean Sea. It was at an important seaport. And cargo ships would come into that seaport and they would off, offload their, uh, their, their goods and their goods would then travel what was known uh, as the, along the Ignatian Way. The Ignatian Way was the main trade route from east to west in ancient times. And so these goods would have been offloaded at Thessalonica, put on this trade route and brought all the way to Asia or into Europe. Now think about this. Here was this church and they were located right at this very point where all of these ships were coming in, where all of these traders were coming in, where all of these uh, cargo, uh, all this cargo was arriving, and they were ideally placed for the spread of the gospel. And notice what Paul says, for out from out of you sounded out the word of the Lord. You know what the, words, the word means? Sounded out means reverberated, it echoed. You ever stand on a mountain and try and hear your echo, you know, shout down the valley and listen to your echo? It's fun, isn't it? And you, you know, you cry something, you know, you usually shout hello or something. You never know who you're shouting to. So you always say hello in case somebody's listening. Hello! And you hear that voice. Hello, hello, hello. Going down the valley. Well, that was the picture that Paul painted of, his, of their proclamation of the gospel. It started in Thessalonica, but it just kept going and going and going and going and going down the road. It sounded out. It was the sound of a herald's trumpet. It was the sound of the gospel. Their witness echoed the length and breadth of their land. Their outreach notice was local. It, was, it sounded out in Macedonia. It was national. It sounded out in Achaia. It was international. It sounded out in every place. Boy, that's a testimony, isn't it? That's what makes a great church great, you know. You know, I, I do enjoy listening today to the letter from Brother uh, Cosgrave, Cosgrove, uh, Francis, who I've known a long time. I've known Francis over 30 years, and uh, I've known him a very long time. And he's one of the finest missionaries I think I could possibly mention or reference. He's a fine, fine fellow. And listening to his, his he's so upbeat, you know, he's been shot at, and he's been, you know, he's, all kinds of terrible things have happened to him. And he's always praising the Lord and thanking the Lord for what's going on among the Bajau in, in the Philippines. But you know, here's the thing, folks. Is it really right for us, for you as a church, to come up to this pulpit and read out the accounts of, of Francis's ministry or any other missionary's ministry and to read how he's hazarded his life for the gospel and to read about how he's fighting his corner to maintain this church building. And I just, I, I just remark, I was so typically Francis to say that he was building a prefab building that if they, if they ruled against him, he'd just move it to wherever. I just thought that was so typical of him. He'd just move it wherever they sent it. But you know what? Wouldn't it be, isn't it somewhat duplicitous, somewhat hypocritical of churches to read out missionary letters and to say, this is what's being done in your name in the Philippines or in Honduras or, or in Spain or some other place, and yet you're not doing it at home? Don't you think that there's a problem if you're sending people across the sea that you won't go across the street? You see, they were evangelistic. People had entered that city and they were impacted by the Christianity of the Thessalonians. And they, and they actually, they, they sounded out, they reverberated the gospel to such an extent that the message went before Paul in his travels. As Paul would come into one place, he'd start witnessing to people. He'd start saying, listen, let me tell you about Jesus. And let me tell you about how he died for you. And let me tell you how he gave himself. And they say, we heard that message. You've heard this? Is there a church in this town? No, no, no. Have you guys are a missionary here? No, there's no missionary here. How did you hear this? Well, you know, I was on this ship, and we embarked at Thessalonica. And when I got off the boat, here was a member of the church there, and, and he shared with me how Jesus loves me and how he died for me. And, and, and so Paul is, is astounded that, that they're actually beating him to it. He says that we need not to speak anything. Your faith toward God were to spread abroad so that we need not to speak anything. Here's how Charles Swindoll 
describes that. He says, as Paul moved through Macedonia, where Thessalonica was located, and Achaia, where Corinth was located, he would start to proclaim the gospel, then stop short in amazement. Still echoing down the canyons and through the streets was the word of the Lord spoken by Thessalonian believers. Their Christianity was contagious and spreading faster than Paul could travel. I like that. Then one last thing about this great church. Verses 9 and 10, they were expectant of the Lord's return. Look here. It says, For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. Now, here's one more reason why Paul is thankful for this church. You see, the reality of the Thessalonian conversion was there to be seen. Like Paul, their witness was not a witness of mere words. Their witness was backed up by a complete change, by a completely different outlook. Notice what happened there. They turned to God from idols. Now, notice carefully the wording again. It didn't say, it doesn't say they turned from idols to God. It says they turned to God from idols. You say, well, what's the difference? Well, here's the difference. If you, if you say they turned from idols to God, it's almost like you've got to do some things before you can believe. But you know what? God is not asking, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, God is not saying to you, you've got to get all your ducks in a row and get your life in order and everything has to be just so in order to believe. What he's saying is this, here's the Savior, here's the Lord Jesus who's come from heaven to earth to be our sin bearer, to die on the cross of Calvary, to take your penalty, to take the judgment of your sin upon himself, to be buried, to rise again and, the, and to offer to you the gift of eternal life. And he's saying this, if you will believe, God will change your life. You see, you don't change your life and believe. You believe and the Lord changes your life. Let me give you an example of this. I started my ministry in the Republic of Ireland. And in the Republic of Ireland, the, the uh, population is, I think then it was, maybe different now, but then it was about 96% Roman Catholic. And of course, if you know anything about Catholicism, you'll know it's not a biblical religion. And you'll know that there's a lot of idolatry in Catholicism. So I would go witnessing to people and sit in their living room, and you would see in their homes these pictures on the wall, the sacred heart of Jesus. And I don't know if you've ever seen one of these, but they're just, I think they're grotesque myself. But they, they, they're on the wall, and, and Jesus got, it looks like he's having open heart surgery. You know, his chest is open, and his heart is there to be seen, and there's a crown of thorns usually around his heart. And people would pray. To that, to that image. Or they'd bless that image. Or sometimes you'd go in and you'd see a statue of Mary on the mantelpiece. Or a statue of Francis to, of Assisi or, uh, or Padre Pio or some other a Roman Catholic saint or revered individual. And people would pray to those statues and they would revere those statues. Sometimes they'd kiss them and touch the base of the statue. Kiss their fingers and touch the base of the statue. And I would go in there and I, would, and I would share the gospel with these people. And I would tell them how Christ died for them. And I would explain to them that salvation was by grace through faith, that it was not of works. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. I would explain all this to them. I would tell them that if they would simply act in faith and ask him, God would completely forgive their sins without any necessity for a priest or a confessional box, Jesus Christ himself being our great high priest. And some of those people believe that message. And some of them were gloriously saved. Now, here's the thing. When they got saved, do you think I looked up and said, now listen, this sacred heart of Jesus picture, it has to come down. You know, I never mentioned it. I never pointed out there was a statue of Mary on their mantelpiece. 
I just came back and started teaching them the Bible, teaching them the Bible, teaching them the Bible. And then one day I'd come to the home, and guess what? There'd be no picture. There'd be a lovely picture of a landscape of Ireland or something else, you know, a picture of the family was up there or something. And I would say, as often comment, say, well, I see you've taken your picture down. And they say, I don't have any need for that anymore. You see, that's what it means to turn to God from idols. And that's what the Thessalonians did. As Ray Stedman puts it, you do not leave your idols for some reason and painfully try to find God. What happens is that you discover something of the beauty, the glory, and the greatness of God. And seeing that and wanting it, you're willing to forsake the cheap and tawdry things you once believed could satisfy. In other words, you don't need idols anymore. Now, I want to bring one last thought to you. Here it is in verse 10. They turned to God from idols. They turned to serve the living and true God. There's the mark of real faith, a faith that works. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus which delivered us from the wrath to come. You see the word to wait, the lovely little composite Greek term, anameno. Ana means up, meno means to wait. So they weren't just waiting for Jesus, they were waiting up for Jesus. What does that tell you? It tells you that they were expecting him to come at any time. You know, since, uh, since the Lord has led us here to England, uh, I have, I guess, walked into this ministry where I end up preaching almost somewhere different every weekend beside my own church. And, uh, you know, the, this last few weeks I've been in Sunderland. I've been in Nottingham. I'm here today in Birmingham. Next week I'm in Ipswich. I'm like always somewhere, someplace, sometime preaching. Not always on a Sunday, but I'm always on the move somewhere. And, uh, you know, it's just the way the Lord has worked things out. Now, sometimes if I go to Ipswich next week, I'm going on Friday. I'm staying over Friday night and preaching all day Saturday. Uh, my wife will not expect me back on Friday night. So guess what? Friday night, she's not going to wait up. There's no point in waiting up. There's no point in her sitting up waiting for me to come because she knows I'm not coming. But on some other occasions, when I go maybe to somewhere that's closer to home, and I may be preaching in the evening, and I'll say to her, I'll be back about 10 o'clock, or I'll be back at half past 10 or 11 o'clock. And sometimes, if she's very kind to me, she'll say, I'll wait up. Most times she says, I'll just go to bed. But sometimes she says, I'll wait up for you. And you know, it always, it always it's a blessing to me when I turn into the driveway and realize she's still waiting up, all right? Now, here's the thing. She wouldn't wait up if she didn't think I was, I was coming. Does that make sense? Now, they are waiting up for the coming of the Lord. They expected the coming of the Lord. In fact, what's interesting about this particular uh, epistle is that the second coming of the Lord is mentioned in every chapter, at the end of every chapter. Notice in chapter 2 and verse 19, Paul says, for what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming. In chapter 3 and verse 13, he talks about to the end that he may establish your hearts unbelievable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. In chapter 4 and verse 15, he talks about the coming of the Lord and how it will not prevent those who are dead. And at the end of chapter 5 and verse 23, he prays for their sanctification, body, soul, and spirit to be preserved blameless unto the coming of the Lord. Listen to me. A great church knows that Jesus is coming again. And we are waiting up. I'm excited about it, aren't you? Listen, this is our blessed hope. This is our living hope. This is our lively hope. 
This is the thing that keeps me going. You know, when I see ISIS at work in the Middle East, you know, it's so depressing. What's going on there? People being crucified, people being beheaded, people being tortured. And you think, what a wicked world. When I see Russia getting into the mix and China getting into the mix and, and Britain and America's in the mix and other nations are in the mix. And you see this great buildup of armory in the Middle East and people say, can anybody ever solve it? Yes, they can. But it's not Obama. It's not Cameron, it's not Putin, the Lord Jesus. He is coming soon. And a great church, and the mark of a great church, is that we wait up for him. We're expecting him to come. No wonder that Paul gave thanks for it. Energetic in their service, sure of their election, exemplary in their conduct, evangelistic in their outreach, expectant of the Lord and his return. You know, in the light of what we see here, here's what you've got to ask this morning of this church. Those of you who are regular here, who are members here, who are attending here, you've got to ask yourself this question. If Paul was writing to Bethel Free Church, Ward End Road in Birmingham, how would we compare with the church at Thessalonica? How would we match up? You see, the Thessalonians set a very high standard, didn't they? And, they, and set before us is a, is a chapter which really is, is a, not just an example to the churches of their time and of their region, but to the churches of all time in every region. And here's what I would say to you this morning as friends and members of Bethel Free Baptist Church. May the Lord help you. May the Lord help you to show the same degree of energy, the same elect confidence, the same exemplary behavior, the same evangelistic zeal, and the same expectancy that the church at Thessalonica had as they anticipated the coming of the Lord. May God bless these thoughts to your hearts this morning. Mm-hmm.